and welcome to the ninth episode of Did You Do Your Homework? The pop culture podcast that teaches you everything about anything and where we make doing your homework fun. My name is Kaylee Scouten. Um, I'm a data analyst and massive movie watcher. And helping me each week to discuss our homework assignments, build the curriculum, and share next week's episode's assignments are... That's you guys. <laughs> oh, that's us? Ah. <laughs> I was trying to decide who I wanted to be this week, uh, but I think that the answer is, and this is probably a duplication, uh, but I am Martha Sullivan, and this week I am a Pathfinder for the Andromeda Initiative. Oh, you know, the other option could have been your Martha Sullivan, now 30 years old. Shush! <laughs> How dare you out me to our listeners, Pete? Yeah, I'm, I, wait, I'm Martha Sullivan. birthday? Uh, we are recording on a Sunday, and my actual birthday will be tomorrow, Monday. Okay. okay. I'm Martha Sullivan, librarian and birthday girl. <laughs> uh, and I'm Pete Romberg, outer of people's birthdays and uh, non-observer of societal norms about uh, How people and their dare ages. dare you? <laughs> um, before we get started, um, I'd like to share with you, our lovely listeners, what the last piece of media that we've consumed has been. Um, mine has been Mystery Science Theater 3000. More specifically, the Cry Wilderness episode. This uh, is the new... Are these new episodes on Netflix? Yes, these are the new episodes on Netflix. Starring Felicia how, Day and uh, Patton Oswalt. How, how would you rate them against our classic MST3K? Oh, that's a loaded question. Um, I never actually watched the old Mystery Science 3000. I mean, not as much like, without any form of regularity. I know... Like, <laughs> you've been kicked off oh whatever <laughs> I, I just never had access to it i don't think it was on regular television when i was growing up and it wasn't something that i actively sought out and it wasn't something i think i was even aware of until i got into the college age um so i've watched a, i've seen a couple riff tracks but that's about it um well at the least are you enjoying the new netflix uh iteration of it oh yes very much so Cool. Okay. Um, mine is uh, the first trade paperback of the DC Rebirth comic Batgirl and the Birds of Prey. Uh, volume <laughs> one titled, Who is Oracle? Why are you laughing, Peter? <laughs> because that so clearly checks literally all of your boxes. <laughs> Every single one. Uh, Batgirl is my favorite superhero, and I love team-ups of strong ladies. Um it is written by Shauna and Julie Benson, and the art is by, I'm probably going to mispronounce this, so I apologize, uh, Roge Antonio and Claire Rowe. Uh, it's wonderful. Um, as I said, Batgirl is my favorite superhero. Uh, she has gone through several iterations recently. Um, right now she's in sort of her Burnside hipster vibe kind of deal, uh, meant to appeal to younger readers. Uh, I'm into it. I like it a lot. Uh, who, who is Batgirl these days? Is it Barbara Gordon? Yes. Okay. It's Barbara Gordon. Um, the the other Birds of Prey are Dina Lance as the Black Canary and Helena Bertinelli as the Huntress, uh, which I do believe is the uh, classic team from when Gail Simone was writing Bop. Um, but yeah, it's good fun. Black Canary is a super great maternal 
like we'll take care of anyone kind of figure. And then Helena Bertinelli is coming to this book off of being a spy in the Grayson solo title. So yeah, it's a lot of fun. Highly recommend it. I think the DC Rebirth titles as a whole have been very strong, um, especially coming off of New 52, which was inconsistent at best. Um, <laughs> so if, you, if you're if you a comic person, but you kind of fell off on DC, I think the, the Rebirth titles are a really good jumping in point. Awesome. For myself, I was all set to uh, very easily and simply say, uh, I just rewatched Doctor Strange after getting back from Chicago this weekend. Uh, but then that ended about 45 minutes ago, and obviously I can't just be sitting around without listening to music. So actually the most recent <laughs> thing I've listened to, or that I've consumed, was um, Father John Misty's album I Love You, Honey Bear, which came out in 2015. Father John Misty used to be with Fleet Foxes. I think he's recorded with them again on their new album that's coming out soon. Um, I like him in small doses. He's a very clever writer, but also rather misanthropic. Um, and so it's interesting to listen to for a bit until you're like, all right, dude, I'm done with you. Uh, (laughs) moving on. So uh, 45 minutes was like the right amount of time. So is this an album or a song? Yeah, sorry. So it's an album. Um, the album is I Love You, Honey Bear came out in 2015. Um, his okay, previous gotcha. album was called Fear Fun, came out in 2012. I've got it classified as sort of psychedelic folk, but with a lot of hipster in there. If you like Fleet Foxes, it might be worth checking out. Sounds good. All right, so um, let's move into our homework assignments. Um, this week, our subject matter was Strange Bedfellows. Um, and the topic or the subject that I picked was called was a movie from I want to say 2015. Oh, I was gonna make it older. No, um, <laughs> called The Man from Uncle. Um, it is based on a 1960s television series, um, by the same name that I had never heard of. It is your. It is a spy comedy. I think is a good way to categorize it, where you've got your typical spy tropes, but with a very comedic twist on things. Um, and it it follows Napoleon Solo as he teams up with. It, wait, sorry. It follows CIA agent Napoleon Solo as he teams up with a KGB operative, Ilya, I think. Is how you pronounce that? His name um, might as well Il- be Russian Gayovich. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Russian McRussians. <Russian, laughs> right. Yes. And uh, their stripes and teamworkiness as they try and stop a major bomb plot. I'm I'm really glad that you were like kind of struggling to describe the plot of this movie because <laughs> within like a I day I could not have told you <laughs> no like within a day of watching it I'm like that movie had fun chemistry between the two leads and I don't know what, what like I can't tell you the plot I can't tell you what they were trying to do uh I was oh. I was entertained while I was watching it and then it immediately left my brain 
I think it's it's a very good movie to watch more than once. Like, and I I hate mm. having those movies where it's just like, oh yeah, you totally need to watch it again because I I think I feel like most of the time that's a cop out. But I think in this sense, it's like once you know what you're getting into, and like you on a rewatch, you're like, oh, that's right, and then you start to pick up those little bits as you go through and watch it again. But yes, I, I do feel like it is a movie that on subsequent watches it gets better. Hmm. The other thing is it's it's a Guy Ritchie movie, and it feels very much like a Guy Ritchie movie. As I was watching it the whole time, I'm like, hey, it's a Guy Ritchie movie. <laughs> and like they're fun. Like they're fun and like kind of brainless, but Yeah. Like, you know. Yeah. Oh, I had a hard time movie. with this movie. Um because I it I I couldn't tell what it wanted to be. Like you you called it a comedy and I I think that that's true, but also every once in a while it would get very serious all of a sudden and I'm not sure it did a great job handling those kind of tonal shifts. Like every okay. time Army ha- every time Army Hammer would have like an emotion I felt like suddenly we were watching a different movie. Hmm. So I, I just had sort of a hard time keeping track of how like I was supposed to be feeling about stuff. Okay. Like, am I, am I supposed to, is this supposed to be funny? Am I, is it supposed to be serious? Like what is happening right now? And I thought that the movie was at its best when it was kind of leaning into the camp factor. Yes. Cause I think that the man from uncle, the original show was very campy cause it was a, you know, seventies or sixties spy show mm-hmm. um and i i think that even in the 70s or 60s version it was kind of sort of a spoof of bond um like it i i think that so, even the original was a little spoofy so like there's a scene in this new one where Ilya is driving around on a speedboat that's like progressively getting more <laughs> on fire and napoleon like hauls himself out of the water finds some guy's lunch in a truck that he's stealing and then tucks in to eat it while Ilya is still like in the middle of this explosive chase. Like the moments like that I thought were great. Yeah. <laughs> yes. And then suddenly, and then suddenly Guy Ritchie would say, Oh, but actually this is serious business. And I would go, wait, what, what are we talking about now? <laughs> <laughs> maybe that's why within 24 hours, 90% of this movie had left my brain. Is that like, also maybe why it didn't do super great in, the theaters i also think that relevant to our theme um army hammer and henry cavill were best together in sort of that campy mode like when 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 cavill gets to be very kind of tongue-in-cheek uh smug and Ilya gets to be sort of like ah i i am reluctantly the competent one because you're just too american to have yourself together uh was when i thought their chemistry worked the best okay again like the one thing that stood out for me for this entire watch was how much i enjoyed the two of them interacting with each other um and so when you when you picked it kaylee for this episode and the theme of sort of strange bedfellows i was like oh yeah okay that makes total sense because that's what this movie is. What when it's doing it right. What like this movie is at its best at that moment. Yes, I, I agree with you on that. Very much so. Let's move on to our next assignment. 
Pete, do you want to introduce your homework assignment for this week? Yes, gladly. Um, as I'm beginning to introduce it, though, I am doing a very quick Google search to see when it was published. Um, 2001! No, 1990. Yep. Are you kidding? I am not kidding. You <laughs> are all off. over the map. <laughs> I'm, I'm terrible at this game. The edition that I listened to must have been 2001. Ah, uh, fair. Um, so... I selected um, the Terry Pratchett and Neil Gaiman amazing book, Good Omens, The Nice and Accurate Prophecies of Angus Nutter Witch. Agnes. Agnes. Agnes, Angus, whatever. Um, (laughs) (laughs) uh, This is a beloved classic, cult classic, uh, written by possibly, you know, two of the greatest sci-fi fantasy humorist british authors out there um r.i.p terry pratchett neil gaiman doing very well for himself these days and it's about the apocalypse you've got uh an angel and a demon working together to try to prevent the apocalypse from happening because they've been on earth uh ever since Uh, the, the demon is literally the snake uh from eden um the angel was one of the the four angels supposed to guard the gates of Eden, after Adam and Eve were kicked out. They've been on Earth since then, all 6,000 years of it, and they decided they rather liked being on Earth. Uh, so they, they're trying to prevent the apocalypse. Meanwhile, the forces of both heaven and hell are trying to make the apocalypse happen through the form of the Antichrist, who is a 10-year-old boy living in England. Other things happen. That's your broad strokes. Thoughts on it? I love this book. I have read this book many times. Um, I actually listened to it on audio How was for that? this assignment. It was really enjoyable. Um, yes. The the narrator, let me pull up. When the, As you're pull pulling his... it up, I tend to really like yeah. audio books when I have the time to do so. And this to me seems like one where if it's a good narration and a good sort of like um, production would really lend itself well to audiobook. He oh, does yeah. great voices. He, it uh, it's amazing. narrated by Martin Jarvis. Um, and yeah, I thought that the it a good audiobook with a good narrator can almost feel like a radio play. Mm-hmm. And this one especially, like because of all the scene changes and all of the characters going on, having a good narrator keeps everyone straight keeps the story kind of running along at a good clip but yeah it's it's basically the height of a reverend comedy i think <laughs> yes because be, it, it plays very fast and loose with uh some fairly if you're religious uh some fairly heretical ideas <laughs> and <laughs> concepts let's just say that the four horsemen of the apocalypse become the four motorcyclists of the apocalypse among other uh, things and i just I love that he just straight up is like, yeah, and because disease isn't a thing anymore, like, pestilence has been replaced with pollution because that's how much we suck as people. Well, and also after um, uh, vaccines and um, penicillin. Yeah. Um, But no, I I think that there's a lot of really great team-ups and pairings in this book. Yeah. you know, you have the the sort of obvious one in Crowley and Aziraphale, which I've been mispronouncing my entire life. BTW. Um, <laughs> so you have you have the angel and the demon kind of obvious pairing, but then you also have um, 
Anathema and Newt, the titular witch's descendant um, and the witch finder that she kind of becomes haphazardly connected to and, you know, their relationship that develops. And then you have... Um, you have uh, who has it? Shadwell, um, the Witchfinder sergeant, and the uh, painted Jezebel, who is also his yes. like, landlady. <laughs> um, yes, who, do- who tells fortunes? <laughs> yes, except for on Thursdays. Um, yes, and oh, you have it's. I was going to say it's not a it's not a pairing. It's a it's a quartet. But you have the you have Adam the Antichrist and his buddies who are very similar kind of in feel to. Um, the gang of kids and it. I, I was thinking this time through, it's like, oh, Stephen King could have written, if Stephen King was British and funny, he could have written all of the scenes with the kids. Yeah, there. it's a very, it's a very Stephen King type dynamic, just with the, um, how kind of classic the kids are. Like, they're straight out of a, a 1950s TV show, which I think actually gets brought up in the book of how, like, improbable uh how improbably perfect they are as kids it's like storybooks have the have these kinds of kids they don't they don't actually exist which but they're also goes really well with their setting of being in lower tadfield which is like the most perfect place on earth right right and that's because like of all... the antichrist being there and like yeah, and yeah all, it. all scraped knees and uh you know what do they say all scraped knees and bicycles i don't i don't remember <laughs> um, but then they as an they as a like four person entity become a really great foil for the four horsemen um especially during their final confrontation scene so yeah i think there's a lot of really great relationships uh that end up driving the plot forward in a really interesting way yeah the the only sort of non strange pairing is in the authors because it it is like so Obvious that, of course, Terry Pratchett and Neil Gaiman should have written a book together. <laughs> well, so, you know, I'm actually... I it, actually... They, they wrote it both before they were who they were. Kind of. Well, no, I think Terry Pratchett had been writing Discworld books for a long time. Yeah. He'd been writing them for a bit, but not yet... Like, they hadn't yet gotten the, the cachet that they eventually would. I'm looking at well, when The Color wrote... of Magic came out. <laughs> Oh, the Color of Magic came out in 1983. Correct. Um, so yeah, this is like he wrote ten. Later. He wrote he wrote ten books before before Good Omens came out. Um, and I actually think I think Good Omens feels more Pratchett than Gaiman yes. to me. Yes. I would agree with you on that. Um, but looking at them now, I and I also think it fits more with his kind of com- especially with. Uh, Pratchett's comedic sensibilities. Neil Gaiman doesn't. I don't think comedy when I think of Neil Gaiman and his work. Yeah, he's a lot more illusional and like interested in the way stories are told and change and things. And a lot of that comes through in this, but the driving ethos is definitely more Pratchett. Um, so I would actually, I would be very interested to know. And somebody probably somewhere did an interview with them. And if they did, I'll find it and I'll post it with our supplementary materials. Um, just asking them, like, how much of this book is whose? I, I have the answer to that because it was at the back of my copy. Hey! Pratchett was the one who kept the actual 
like formal final document because Gaiman was simultaneously working on Sandman, but they okay. both avow that it's basically a 50-50 thing. Um, Gaiman did more of the beginning, Pratchett did more of the ending, but they also have lines that they both particularly enjoy that they each thought that the other had written, um, and so are possibly <laughs> convinced that the book was writing itself at some points. Um, so they, they effectively say that a a person known as Terniel Pratchett wrote the book. Nice. <laughs> but but Pratchett was the one who kept the official document. Well, and then you have things like the footnotes, which are very Terry Pratchett. Yes. Um, and like the weird, I can see how the sort of dark and gross and weird stuff would have come from Neil. It's just, it's, it's always a, it's always an interesting question for me. Like when you have two co-authors on a book, how much is who? Right. And, and like they've said things in interviews, like if you have a two hour conversation with your other author and then one of them writes 2000 words, who actually did the work there? And, and in that situation, it's Pratchett who was actually writing the words, but it was following a long conversation where they were creating the scenes and the ideas together. So I guess that's the answer to your question. Yeah, which is really lovely, actually. Mm-hmm. Kaylee, this was your first time reading it. It was my first time reading it. Um, I had tried many times. I've actually owned this book probably for 10 years, but I've never actually been able to get into it and so i'm kind of glad that this was assigned because it meant you don't really have a choice <laughs> you have to you know read this or listen to the audio book or something um, do your homework yes exactly i need to do my homework <laughs> um and i'm really glad that i did i'm pretty familiar with terry pratchett's work i'm slightly less familiar with neil gaiman's which is unfortunate, but I plan on changing that. So it's very interesting. And I feel like it's taking a big giant bite out of food. Like there, That sounds like <laughs> a really weird analogy. There is a lot going on in this book. It is a very hefty book. And I, I, I definitely understand why people read it multiple times. Because I, fe I feel like I'm definitely going to have to read it again. And probably sooner rather than later. Because it's just... There's so many little intricacies and, like, I feel like running jokes going on throughout the book. When And, like, blink and you miss it sort of characters and, you know, they, they're both very good at creating interesting characters who, who stick around for three pages and then yes. either disappear or die a gruesome death or something. Yes, um. which was amazing to me. Like, I was like, I was like, I was getting really into, I think, some telephone lady at one point. And I was like, "Oh, what's 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 your deal? Like, you're you're fascinating." And then, like, the next page, she dead. She's dead, and I'm just like, "Oh, you made me feel things. Why?" And then the uh, the counterpart um, to the four horse people, no motorcyclists of the apocalypse, their counterparts, where um, there was gr gruesome bottle or grievous oh. bottle arm. Oh my god, I forgot about them. <laughs> the, like, off-brand Hell's yeah. Angels. Angels. <laughs> Non-alcoholic. Yes. Non-alcoholic lager. Cruelty to small animals. Really cool people. Yeah, well, one of them like, keeps oh changing god. his name, like... Yes. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. 
Like, oh, I think man. I think they were my favorite part. <laughs> also, death because if you've ever read a Terry Pratchett book before, like death is just it's the same. It's, it's the, the same, same death. death. Yep. Who might be like my favorite character? Just odd to say. <laughs> no, he's pretty wonderful. Um, Can I tell you about Anya's ghost? Yes, Martha. <laughs> tell us about Anya's ghost. Sure. So my homework for this episode is a graphic novel called Anya's Ghost by Vera Broskol. It was written in, or was published in 2011. Uh, the cover quote is by Neil Gaiman, which is uh, sort of lovely and intersectional. He calls it a masterpiece. Uh, this is the story of Anya, who's a high schooler, um, who's comes from a Russian family. Her mother is studying to take her citizen's test. Uh, but on her way to school one day, she trips and falls in a hole and finds the ghost of Emily Riley, who uh, ends up kind of following Anya around. Um, and she starts off very helpful. <laughs> um, she starts off, you know, she wants to stay with Anya because she is, she was trapped in that hole and she's been there for almost a hundred years. And now Anya is providing her this opportunity to get out of the hole. She has to go where her bones are. Um, but Anya finds herself in possession of one of her finger bones. So now Emily is kind of free to hang out in the real world and she would really like to stay there. So she starts by helping Anya with her homework, um, cheating on tests, giving her advice to get noticed by her crush. Um, and it all starts to go really weird as Anya realizes that what Emily wants her to do is not what she wants to be doing. Um, but when she, when she tries to tell that to her, when she tries to break off uh, this relationship that she's formed, uh, Emily starts getting pretty violent. She tells Anya that she was murdered uh, which is why she's in that hole. We find out that that is very not true. Um, that she, in fact, killed a couple of people. Um, and when when Anya finds that out, uh, she becomes determined to uh, to get rid of get rid of Emily, and if she can, possibly exercise her ghost. But yeah, I picked this one because I kind of wanted an example of a toxic relationship. Uh, we, we've been talking about people who who work well together, um, and I think that that is great, and those stories are great, but also there are a lot of stories about relationships or partnerships where, you know, they, the people involved in them think that, think things are good and think things are beneficial, and they just end up not being that. They end up being toxic. They end up being dangerous. Um, and also, I like reading comics. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, but yeah, what did you guys think? Um, I actually, I love how Anya changes throughout the story. Hmm. Where at first, like, I couldn't stand her at first. And I was like, really? And then at the end, I'm like, oh, I kind of love you. Um, and I I love how she helps Emily. She, The relationship does turn toxic, but it's at the end when she, you know, has a sit down or a yeah, I'm going to call it a sit down with Emily and is like, I understand where you're coming from, but what you did is still wrong and sort of helps her move past where she's at to where she needs to be mm -hmm. instead of just saying, well, I, I defeated you, you know, you're, you're going to go back to being whatever she, she 
through their relationship, she grows and understands. And I think that's beautiful. Yeah, Anya definitely... Her her character arc is definitely one of growing empathy. Yes. Um, she, you know, she as I as I mentioned before, her her family is Russian, um, and she has a lot of disdain in the beginning of the book for the like the church that she goes to, um, for the food that her mother cooks. There's another Russian boy in her class. Even just being Russian, um, you know, she will say that her last name is Brown rather than Gajovic or, you know, whatever it actually is. It's it's that tension yeah. between uh, immigrant assimilation versus immigrants, like, still retaining the, the pride of the nationality. It's, it's a really, really good immigrant story um, on top of everything else. Yeah. And yeah, I think that as the as the story goes, you see her develop understanding and empathy for her mother, for this culture that she's part of, um, for Dima, this other boy in her class who is, I think, closer to, um, or he's more Russian. Um, he immigrated yeah. more recently than she did. More recently. Mm -hmm. That's the, yeah. More recently is the phrase I was looking for there. <laughs> um, <laughs> but, you know, she she's kind of embarrassed by him at the beginning and, like, their association for both being Russian and then by the end. Um, I, I, I don't know that you could call them friends, but they're definitely on the road to understanding. Uh, he ends up helping her with some of her research and, you know... And I think it's through that empathy that she's eventually able to help Emily, despite Emily having done this terrible thing, um, to have the understanding that Emily needs to move on from being trapped in the hole and move on to the afterlife. Kaylee, before we started recording today, you were talking about how one of your sort of hopes or goals for this discussion would be looking at how do we use media like this um, about um, strange bedfellows, uncommon um, or unexpected friendships or alliances or what have you um, to create what I called radical empathy. Mm -hmm. I think of all of all three works that we've assigned, this one is the best for that. Um, the whole plot hinges, as Martha, you were just saying, on growing empathy um, of the yes. main character. Um the main care, like Anya goes through a tremendous amount of growth, not just in terms of empathy, but in terms of sort of who she is as a person. And the flip side of that radical empathy is this is a phenomenal book to give to any high school or even middle school student um, because it deals with friendship. It deals with being different. It deals with immigration and immigrants. It deals with, you know, high school cool kids. Uh, it's it's sort of your perfect storm of and then also like emotions and love and and you know crushes and things like that um it's very much a perfect storm of things that that middle school and high school students are grappling with and dealing with and seeing it presented in this way and seeing it from this specific perspective is a really phenomenal way to create that radical empathy hopefully Yes, I agree completely. Um, I'm going to take this opportunity real fast to wrap around back to Good Omens, because I think that that sense of empathy is something that Good Omens also ends up hinging on. Mm -hmm. 
Um, mm-hmm. Because you have Adam, who is the Antichrist, and this figure who is destined to bring about the apocalypse and end the world, um, which he ends up not doing because he is allowed through accident to grow up to be completely human. And I think it's the empathy that he develops by living a normal life and by like, he, he ends up channeling all of his, his huge capacity for power ends up being channeling into the things that he decides that he loves and by being left alone, the things that he loves are his friends, his family, his hometown. Like, in the abstract way that an 11-year-old would think about the environment, he's, it's like, the world that I like to play in, I love that too. And that ends up being why he's able to sort of cast off this destiny that's on him and be like, no, everything in me is telling me to end the world, but I love the world. Yeah. Um, mm-hmm. Well, so, you know, having... Oh, sorry. Pratchett himself, specifically Pratchett, more than Gaiman, is a deeply empathic writer. Um, and that really shows through in a lot of Good Omens. Um, and in, in many, especially of the later Discworld books. Oh, yeah. Like, an empathy for people who are different is definitely... Empathy and interest in. Because I think for Adam, yeah. it's mm-hmm. also an interest in things that are different from him. Um... Especially when he meets Agatha, or, uh, yeah, Agatha? Uh, Anathema. Anathema. Anathema, the first time. <laughs> Which is uh, such it's a like, great name. Yeah. And it's also, it's a very real, like, little kid thing. Yes. Like, somebody is willing to talk to me about something that they're really interested in, and now I'm interested in it, too. So I'm going to care really hard about it because it's new and exciting and also um, like you've given me the tools to kind of start to be interested in it on my own. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, working with, I work with teens, not with uh, kids that young, but it's, it's a very similar sort of, um, you know, kind of inspiring interest and passion in kids works very similar that way, you know, whatever age level they're at. Yes. Especially since I feel like a lot of media right now is sort of hinging more on the, oh, that's not cool. It's not cool to like things. It's not cool to be passionate. I think it's important to be passionate and to encourage that. Ironic disinterest is like the least interesting thing to me right now yes like, I agree. or like only 100%. or only liking things ironically like no but like that's that's been around <laughs> since the 80s right i mean is that i i'm not as deeply aware of i guess youth culture i don't is that having a resurgence now i actually don't think so and i think it's because of geek culture i think mm. right now the rise of geek culture has made it um you care passionately about the very specific thing you care about. Yeah. Like it's okay now to be super into stuff. Um, for a long time, I think it wasn't, but now I think you definitely see, particularly with younger kids, like it's, it's cool to be super into and super knowledgeable about a topic. Mm -hmm. So we, we've sort of looked at, Good Omens and Anya's ghost from the empathy point. Kaylee, knowing that, like, your sort of interest in this topic was that springboard, mm-hmm. 
do you think that Man from Uncle hits that in in like a similar way? I, I guess like how how do you square the idea like that sort of idea with you know uh, Man from Uncle Guy Ritchie fest? Yeah. Um. Well, and obviously, I, if the answer is like, yeah, it doesn't really square. Then, uh, <laughs> that, that, yeah, then that's I, the answer. I actually, I actually don't, don't know. I'm trying to like think, and I don't actually know if it squares very well. I know I came to, I came to the discussion points after doing your guys's homework. If that makes sense, like mm-hmm. I, I consumed Good Omens, and then I consumed Anya's Ghosts, and I was like, oh, you know what, this is a good springboard to launch off of. I think that I think that the man from Uncle was starting to get there, especially at the end. Um that I'm not sure that the question of empathy is something that the man from Uncle is necessarily interested in addressing. <laughs> or even no. aware exists. Well, I, I just I think that that's a movie. I think it's a movie that is more focused on like, oh, look how goofy and mismatched these two people are, without getting super in depth about bringing them around. Like I, I think it's more reveling in the comedy of them not understanding each other than it is about trying to get them to understand each other. But and yeah. and Kaylee, you were sort of saying this a second ago by the end they do sort of come around and understand each other and it's the sort of you know yeah and i feel like if there was a sequel which i don't know if there's any plans to make one then that would probably be more fleshed out this sort of did the um this did something that the other two eh, good omens a little bit but like this was more the understand someone different by being thrust into a like a difficult situation with them yeah, so, like, what I kept thinking of was, like, a frat house. Like, how many times do you hear, like, the frat house? Oh, yeah, you're my brother because we were in so-and-so frat together. And it's just, like, I, I don't have that experience. Um, you you weren't in a frat? That, what? <laughs> I, I was not in a frat. I know. <laughs> but, yeah, I, I, I do agree with you on that. That it is very much, like, getting to know somebody because you're both going through hell together. So, my question for you guys is when you get to know somebody that is drastically different from yourself, if you develop a friendship there, you sort of come to an understanding of things that you might not have understood before. Um, Is there ever a downside to this? The one thing that leaps to my mind immediately, um, because like we, with, with Anya's ghost, sorry, this is not at all about me personally. This is about the, the uh, homeworks. Um, with, Perfect. With, with Anya's ghost, we've been talking so much about um, Anya and her ghosts, which are like the obvious two main characters. Um, but Anya's only real friend at school is another woman named Siobhan. And she and Anya like seem like they're friends only because they're both the outcasts. And so outcasts obviously just, you know, if you have two outcasts at a preppy school, well, they're going to be friends because who else is there? And the one thing there that sort of, you know, like, they're both smoking at the beginning, bumming, or trying and failing to bum cigarettes off each other. And then at the end, Siobhan is, is still smoking and Anya has stopped. And so that, like, that's fine. I, I liked their relationship a lot. But looking at that from the other direction, 
you can very easily fall into bad habits by, you know, befriending somebody who is different and following, you know, negative habits or whatever, um, and you picking those up. I almost wonder if that's less a case of empathy than it is for having somebody reinforce your already bad habits. I got the feeling that with um, with Siobhan and Anya, it was they both felt this way. Like, they both felt very negative um, about their classmates, about their place at the school. And then instead of providing a different alternative, you get a reinforcement of that by two people feeling the same negative the same negative things. Mm-hmm. So it's almost like... <laughs> like negative of, empathy? Yeah, well, you're <laughs> not... It's it's less you're trying to understand somebody else's position and more having somebody reinforce your worldview. Hmm. Yeah, yeah, I think that's right. Yeah. Um, but that, that also might have sidestepped... <laughs> I guess going down that right road might have sidestepped your question, Kaylee. No, I think I think it hit. I get the question. I don't think there's ever anything wrong with trying to understand another point of view. But I I think that there can be times when sympathizing with another worldview is maybe not the correct or not the most useful course of action. I I wouldn't even hedge that. I would say that straight up. Empathy is great. Sympathy <laughs> needs to be intentional. Proceed with caution. Yes. Yeah, sim- uh, empathy without or understanding without sympathy has been sort of my motto recently. Mm-hmm. Uh, particularly in our current political climate, I think that there are. I think it is important right now for people to understand other positions, but also know that understanding does not have to mean excusing or sympathizing with those positions. Yes. Um, I'm going to use that as a segue to cover another question that I have. Do it. With our cultural climate in such disarray and very polarized, it doesn't seem like there's any sort of acceptance on either side or with anybody right now. What would you guys propose that could help change this? Um, because it's not so much so simple as saying, okay, you're on the opposite end of the spectrum from me. Let's sit down and have a talk because they're, I don't feel like anybody will win in that situation. Well, and I, I'm, a, I'm concerned that what we're seeing right now is people on all sides who are not willing to compromise. They are not willing to listen. They are just saying, this is what I believe. And you either get on board or you don't. Yes. One solution, uh, solutions strong, one possible way to address this, I think, um, actually both Anya's Ghost and Man from Uncle hit it really well, um, Good Omens too a little bit with, uh, as Raphael and Crowley, is just know, like, have that empathy for as many different diverse points of view as possible, um, whether it be by actively knowing people from many different backgrounds and worldviews or by reading things by them, exposing yourself culturally to as many possible things as possible. 
you know, Ezra, Raphael, and Crowley in Good Omens are the angel and the demon, but they both sort of, you know, at the end of the book, they say, like, yeah, I knew there was enough good in you to hang out, and it's like, yeah, I knew you were enough of a right bastard to hang out with. Um, <laughs> and and it's that, like, having known each other for 6,000 years, they realize that they're sort of more like each other than they are like their bosses. Um, and I think that that knowing and just exposure to is important. And that can take a lot of different forms depending on what you initially, what, what your initial worldview is. Yeah. I almost wonder if it's got, we've gotten to a point where I assume person B isn't going to listen to me and person B assumes that I'm not going to listen to them. Hmm. And there's no, there's lots of assumptions being made because I feel like a lot of our social media right now is just lots of fights. garbage. Yeah, <laughs> like it feels like if you ever try to say anything, it feels like you you have this assumption that you're going to be shut down. Well, our social media feeds are also curated very closely by algorithms that ensure that the only That's... people we get a well, the only people that we have immediate like interaction to unless we search them out. I think we touched on this on our alternative facts I think we episode. Did. It's it's all echo chamber. Yes. Mm-hmm. We 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 our natural inclination is to search out um people that share our opinions and who will agree with us. So we then are not as exposed to alternative points of view. Yes. And and more than just alternative points of view, which is like I that's part of it, I think, but it's also being exposed to just different lived experiences. Um, that's why I'm I'm so bullish on Anya's ghost for middle school and high school students because it is it's touching on a lot of probably non-standard lived experiences for for the main character um from a lot of different angles like she's an immigrant from russia she i mean it's a woman uh a girl she's an immigrant from russia she's going to an elite prep school on the east coast that's a lot of intersectionality where most high school readers will not be familiar with at least one of those dimensions and just having the story be told from that perspective helps the empathy for different lived experiences. So so not just consuming social media that's from the opposite point of view, but consuming media in general from people yeah. from other walks of life. Not even political points of views, but just lived experiences. And um, media where the protagonists are diverse. Yeah, absolutely. Mm-hmm. Uh, controversial statement, I know. if you guys have not checked it out already i know it was going around my social media um this past week but the oatmeal did a comic called you are not going to believe what i'm about to tell you and i think it's a really great subject for getting to a place um where you are trying to understand things that you are not I guess, set up to understand um, mm. and to sort of like open your mind to be like, or open your mind to get to a better understanding 
of how we can change and be more accepting and empathetic. Cool. Good plug. Also, I, I love the oatmeal in general. <laughs> I'll watch any, or read anything he does. All right, so that's all we have time for today on our lovely little podcast. Um, you can find us online at homeworkpodcast.com, where we will be posting follow-ups to this episode, as well as every other episode that we've done. Um, and you can... Listen to us on iTunes, SoundCloud, Stitcher, Google Play Music, and wherever fine podcasts can be found. Um, you can find us on Twitter at DYDYH Podcast. And if you have any emails or would you like to propose future show ideas or um, subjects, you can email us at show at homeworkpodcast.com. Um, and you can find me specifically on Instagram at Tricky Lemon. Martha, where can we find you online? You can find me on Twitter and Instagram at Magical Martha. Yeah, at Magical Martha, pretty much anywhere. Cool. Um, and Pete? Uh, you can find me on Twitter at Pico3000. That's P-I-K-O 3000. Awesome. Uh, do we want to introduce uh, next time? Oh, yeah. Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> no. <laughs> <laughs> Martha, what is our subject matter for next time? So our subject matter for next time is pop culture perceptions of mental health. Um, I will be assigning the first two episodes of the brand new FX TV show Legion, uh, starring Dan Stevens and Aubrey Plaza, created by Noah Hawley and based on the Legion X-Men character originally created by Chris Claremont and Bill uh, Sienkiewicz. Uh, Pete? Uh, I am going to take us back in time by assigning the 1945 Alfred Hitchcock film Spellbound, starring Ingrid Bergman and Gregory Peck, and featuring crazy dream sequences by Salvador Dali. Um, <laughs> it's going to be a different take a little bit because it's what the 1940s thought about mental health. Spoilers, Freud. <laughs> All right, um, mine will be two, it's a two-parter. Um, don't worry, it's not, it's not long or anything. Um, uh, it's Adventures in Depression and Depression Part 2, um, which you can find on her Hyperbole and a Half, and it is written by, written and drawn by Allie Brosh. I will link to those specific comics in our blog post. Awesome. Although I will recommend just the whole blog it's wonderful. Yes. Yes. All right. Class dismissed. <laughs> <laughs>